Good afternoon. If I have my timing right, it's uh, morning for some of you who, like me, are out on the West Coast. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be able to join you for this year's Little High Lecture. Uh, let me start by saying that as a cardiologist, I appreciate that I may have to up my game a, a little bit for this audience. I, I did want to mention that I was uh, partly raised, uh, professionally speaking, by CT surgeons. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful going into this that I can uh, pass muster with this group. Um, it seems uh, appropriate in a lecture honoring Dr. Lilhai to focus on innovation. Uh, I want to start out by making the case that innovation can be approached as a discipline. Uh, that is something that can be taught and learned, uh, practiced and perfected. Uh, in this first part of the talk, I'll, I'll briefly review the experience we've had in trying to do this kind of training over the past 20 years. And then with that as a basis, I wanna move on to the theme that's highlighted uh, in this title. And that is, we are in the midst of a really historic change uh, in the way innovation uh, has to be practiced in the medtech uh, domain. I'll, I want to make a few points about that. Uh, I'll mention just quickly, I don't have any financial conflicts related to this talk. So uh, starting with Dr. Lilai, clearly uh, an extraordinary genius uh, pioneer, and you're well aware of the technologies that he uh, developed. Uh, from cross-circulation bypass and, and later the bubble oxygenator, tilting disc valve, the first uh, portable pacemaker technology that became uh, Medtronic, the company. I actually have a bit of a small world connection with uh, Dr. Little High. I grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis, uh, just a few miles from the Little High uh, family home. Uh, he was uh, a Minnesota hero, of course, as I was growing up in school. And then in college, I worked a couple of summers uh, at the Variety Club Heart Hospital where uh, he was. I actually worked for a, a younger colleague of his, colleague of yours, uh, uh, John Foker. And that was a pivotal time for me of, of you know, wetting my interest in the intersection of uh, technology and medicine. But it was really a few years uh, later that I got a chance to work uh, more substantially with another uh, innovator colleague of yours, uh, Tom Fogarty. Uh, he mentored me for the development of the intravascular ultrasound technology. And the thing that struck me in the, in the time I was fortunate enough to have uh, with Dr. Fogarty was uh, he, he clearly is a genius uh, inventor, but uh, I noticed that he had a process uh, for inventing. And it struck me at the time that that was a really valuable thing to learn. I was basically moonlighting with him. It was, uh, he had left uh, Stanford at that point. And I thought, boy, this is something that at least for the physicians and engineers who want to be technology innovators, uh, they, they should be able to experience this kind of training. Uh, and so 
uh, years later, when I, I came back to Stanford, uh, I had in mind uh, that uh, we should try to develop a training process uh, that was similar to, to what I had had the luxury of, of uh, learning from Dr. Fogarty. And so we set up a program uh, that we called Biodesign. And the, the basic philosophy behind that approach uh, is shown on this slide. There is, of course, a great deal of important uh, innovation that comes in what you could call a technology push format. That is, in a university laboratory or an R&D uh, facility, some great technology is invented. And then you figure out how that attaches uh, to a clinical need. But what we were interested in uh, is the uh, mirror image of, of that kind of development, and that is uh, need pull uh, innovation, where uh, you take the time to think about a number of needs, pick the one that really is important, understand it deeply, and then figure out what technologies match uh, onto that need. As I had a chance to spend some time with the engineers on the Stanford campus, I, I realized that this was really just a version of something they were developing that has come to be called now design thinking, where the fundamental insight is that you don't start off with an invention or with ideation. That's in the middle of the process. Uh, what you start off with is trying to develop a deep understanding of the needs of the user. Apple is uh, famous for this. So uh, that's a powerful uh, methodology, but we have a big problem in applying this methodology in the healthcare space. And that is that our user is really an, an eight-headed monster. Uh, it would be great if we could uh, just uh, develop technologies uh, for the physician and the patient, but we have all of these other stakeholders, the hospital, the insurance companies that buy technologies, uh, the regulators, the press, uh, and all of those stakeholders have a powerful influence, potentially at least, in whether your technology makes it through the patient care or not. And all of their perspectives are also influenced by whatever is going on uh, with the administration. Change profoundly with Obamacare uh, continues to change as we go forward. So to uh, deal with this complexity, we started teaching this uh, by design process, which like design thinking has inventing in the middle, but the heavy emphasis is upfront in the purple zone here, needs finding and, and needs screening. This is really where we put a uh, heavy uh, emphasis. Uh, I like this uh, quotation. This is really our mantra. Uh, Josh Mackauer, uh, who had a seminal role in putting together this program along with uh, Stefano Zinios from our business school, uh, says uh, a well-characterized need is the, the DNA of a great invention. So let me give you an example of how we implement this. The, the best thing we do, uh, I would say, is a, a postgraduate fellowship. What we do is have an international search for uh, physicians and engineers who are through their formal training, uh, Typically on the clinical side, they're, they're uh, through residency, through their fellowship, maybe at the end stages of those. We put together teams of four 
uh, and they're mixed teams. So uh, for example, in this group, uh, there was an interventional radiologist, a, uh, a mechanical engineer, an electrical engineer, and then a biologist, uh, nephrologist. Uh, and we send that team uh, into the hospital in the first part of the year. In fact, they don't know what area they're going to be working in when they show up on campus. So this year, for example, we're in uh, nephrology and urology. We say to the team, go live in the hospital, uh, go spend uh, uh, at least some weeks, and typically it's a couple of months, until you come up with a list of 200 needs or more. These are uh, important clinical needs, which if there was a technical solution, uh, could potentially have a big benefit to patient care. So there's a little psychology uh, behind this approach, and that is that uh, inventors, and especially young inventors, fall in love with needs too easily. Any clinical need seems important, and, and so uh, you can come across something, say, this is really something that's worth working on, uh, unfortunately, for medical technologies, as you all know, it, it can take 10 years and tens of millions of dollars to get that solution to patient care. So you want to be really careful about which need you pick to pursue. And for that reason, we have this process of uh, starting with a number of needs and then filtering down to, to just a few. And we filter down by common sense filters. So uh, how many patients are affected? How severe is the condition? What are the technologies out there that already treat this condition? And then a little bit about the uh, uh, market potential. What roughly does it look like uh, could be supported uh, in the marketplace? We have a couple of other tools that we use. I won't go into this uh, in uh, detail. Uh, these have turned out to, to work well. One of them is called a need statement. It's a single sentence kind of mission statement about uh, what is the specific problem, what is the population that you're trying to address, and what is the quantifiable outcome that a good invention in that area uh, would yield. And then we have a second layer, which is need criteria, which are the conditions that a good invention has to satisfy that, that you're determining in advance, uh, conditions that have to be satisfied uh, with a good invention. So here's a problem that one of our student teams took on a few years ago that, that's familiar to all of you. And that is patient coming in to an internist with palpitations. Um, and uh, in the internist's office, of course, uh, the EKG is normal and nothing is going on in the heart. So, but it could be something serious. So gets referred to a cardiologist, same thing in that office, nothing's going on, winds up getting a Holter uh, monitor. That chain of events takes a long time, uh, and the information flow back uh, from the Holter can take a long time. And uh, there, there's a cost point, a ka-ching, uh, at, at each of those levels. So uh, this project uh, ultimately became a technology you're probably aware of called the Zeo Patch. Uh, and I just wanted to, to show you uh, what their tools were at the time they were students uh, in the program. So their need statement was a better way to detect potential rhythm disturbances in non-hospitalized patients with suspected arrhythmias to reduce the cost of diagnosis. And uh, their uh, need criteria, the ones that their technology uh, had to have, 
included a lifestyle uh, a criterion, uh, a correlation between determination of the uh, arrhythmia and the symptoms, and then uh, that it had to monitor for a week or longer and had to cost less than 500 per recording. The details of those aren't that important. The thing I want to emphasize is that these criteria and the need statement are only at the framing of the need level. There's no solution embedded in it. But what this is, is a contract that the innovator is making uh, with himself, with herself, that says, okay, I'm gonna invent some things down the line, but I'm not going to accept that invention as being good enough unless it meets these criteria that I've laid out in advance. So the criteria become a truth teller about uh, whether that invention actually matters or, or not. It turns out that's deceptively simple, but a really powerful uh, mechanism. At this point in our training process, the fellows are five months uh, in, and now it's time to invent something. And I, I love the quote from this team, uh, given enough time, sugar, and caffeine, you will invent something. Uh, that turns out to be reliably true. We give our folks a guarantee that if their uh, needs characterization is done well, they will uh, come up with a good invention. Here's a, uh, a screenshot off of the Blackboard for the original uh, uh, conception of the Zeo patch. Um, one of the other things that we use from design methodology, though, is, is we don't accept just one initial solution for each need. So this is the way the flow looks. We, we wind up 200 needs boiled down to just a few. Then for each of those final needs, we have our teams invent at least two or three solutions. So you have an array of possible solutions. And then uh, those, again, go through a filter. But it's a second filter, and it's a tougher filter. This time, we bring in intellectual property. Uh, for those of you who are, are inventors in the audience, you realize this is it's later in the process than uh, what happens in most companies anyway. We like to delay the intellectual property filter un until late in the process, uh, just because we feel it constrains creativity to, to look at that other, uh, those other inventions earlier on. The other filters are a regulatory pathway uh, and uh, the, the uh, reimbursement pathway. So that gets us to a final solution, a, a pretty good idea. And the, the next uh, phase is uh, pretty standard to tell you the truth. It's, it's uh, business uh, planning, trying to get that idea ready for, for uh, the operational plan, what the funding will be like and, and so on. So that's the process, and we've convinced ourselves over the past 20 years, but by working with our trainees, that, that it does actually work uh, pretty well. Uh, we uh, now have 51 companies that have come out of these uh, first timers. Uh, and, and again, they're starting from zero uh, and don't know what area they're inventing in. And by the end of the year, they have something uh, pretty decent. So the companies are one thing. What uh, really makes us uh, happy is the fact that we're starting to reach patients in significant numbers. So the technologies coming from these first timers uh, have now reached uh, over uh, 3.4 million patients. In fact, uh, we do this 
accounting at graduation in June each year. So I'm, I'm sure we're pretty well over 4 million uh, at this point. The companies are great, reaching patients are great. What we're really doing, our product though, is people who are trained in this uh, process of uh, innovation. Uh, they're both engineers uh, and physicians, and uh, we have a number of surgical uh, trainees that, that we're proud of. You may uh, recognize some of these folks uh, from your own institutions. Uh, these are just some of our academic uh, surgeons who are in faculty roles now. Uh, the thing I want to emphasize, though, is that each of them has had uh, a year-long experience of uh, uh, going through needs finding, coming up with a final solution, and, and getting a company launched. So they understand uh, what it takes to get a technology to patient care, or also, just as important, when an idea isn't actually good enough uh, to go uh, forward. The other thing that they uh, developed, by, by the way, in case you hadn't noticed it, I'm making a pitch. If you know any young uh, surgeons in training, uh, we would love to have them apply to the, the program. We especially like surgeons. Uh, the, the deadline is in the summer, and you can just look at the Biodesign uh, website to find that. I was going to say the other thing that they develop is a nice network. Uh, and uh, here are some of the folks that are out in industry from these cohorts of fellows. So we now have 30 uh, CEOs of medtech companies uh, who are the same vintage as these other trainees. And they're, they're a marvelous network. They, they uh, source talent from each other. Uh, these folks come in and help teach in the academic uh, programs that, that the surgeons and others are uh, setting up. So I've been trying to convince you that this process uh, works really well, but, but I start out by saying that we're in the midst of a historic change. So uh, what has uh, changed with this picture? I, I wanna mention three things uh, quickly. First of all, looking for clinical needs only in the hospital is, is uh, kind of like looking for your keys under the lamppost. If you think about the health episode for a patient, the, the hospital is of course only a tiny sliver. And our fellows have been demonstrating with the projects that they're coming up with recently uh, that there's a great deal of innovation uh, and important technology that, that happens uh, in the health prevention and, and diagnosis area and then uh, post-discharge as well. And in fact, a great deal of the venture money now uh, is waking up to this and being spent uh, in these areas. So uh, our uh, implication for our training process is we're asking our fellows to get out of the hospital to think about health more broadly uh, and, and the journey that the patient takes before and after the hospital as well. The second uh, thing that's changed also has to do with the, the needs finding uh, area. Uh, uh, but, but a different aspect of it. So uh, for the first 10, 12 years, we taught a pretty standard process uh, of technology innovation, which is find the need, uh, you know, invent the technology. Uh, and then uh, as you're doing the business plan, think about the value proposition. How is this going to affect the economics, both for society and, and how are the business mechanisms going to work? Well, as, as you are 
all extremely well aware, we are in the middle of a crisis of uh, affordability of healthcare in general. We asked our economic colleague, uh, Vic Fuchs, to plot out the increase in healthcare costs uh, in the modern medical technology area, which uh, era, which starts in the in the 70s, and as you'll see from this graph, and you know these kinds of numbers, in a time when the GDP, which is in green, increased some 50 points, the federal healthcare expenditures increased by over 300 points, and and state and private was uh, somewhere in between. So, yes, healthcare affordability crisis. The question for our purposes is how much does technology contribute to this? If you ask 100 healthcare economists uh, what the biggest single driver of increase in healthcare costs is in the United States, approximately 100 of those people, of those economists, will say it's actually the introduction of new technology into the system. This is one paper uh, that, that tries to get a handle on exactly how much that contribution is. And uh, this is a hard analysis to do. But the bottom line is that somewhere between a quarter and a half of uh, the cost escalation is due to introduction of uh, new technologies. What does this mean? Well, it means that uh, we need to bring uh, value considerations up much further upstream in our innovation process. There needs to be value exploration at the beginning of the needs finding uh, episode. It is equally important to think about economic needs finding as it is to think about clinical needs finding. So how do you do this? Well, that's a harder question. And uh, I would say we have not completely figured out our teaching approach. Here's what we're doing now. We are asking our fellows and students to look out for signposts of, of regions where it's possible to, to save money. So uh, this is a list, shorten the length of hospital stay, change to a less expensive venue, uh, lower the number of staff, reduce procedure time, shift an intervention to a lower cost uh, provider. So the Zeo patch is actually a, a good example of this kind of shift where uh, there are several studies now that, that show that by uh, disintermediating the, the cardiologist and the electrophysiologist, by, by putting this technology in the internist hands uh, that you can save considerable money in this one study uh, over $600 per AFib patient. The other uh, kinds of considerations are more budget uh, focused. Uh, are there outliers in cost effectiveness? You can look at this either uh, regionally, so are there, are there big variations across the country uh, in the Dartmouth Atlas or, or other sources? Um, are there interventions that are routinely unprofitable? Uh, here's an important one, conditions where the long-term cost of care is, is high. So th uh, think about chronic uh, conditions that require uh, a lifetime of drug treatment. So hypertension, diabetes, those are great areas to look uh, into for technology innovation. Or uh, in uh, situations, uh, interventions or hospital episodes where the technology itself is a big part of the cost of the health episode. A uh, classic example of this is ventilators. So we had a team uh, looking at this in the, in the 08, 09 uh, timeframe, uh, realizing that uh, 
standard ventilators, which can cost 40, 50, $60,000, uh, we're using legacy technology and that was possible to design a very capable ventilator uh, for a fraction of that money. Um, this one uh, developed by our team, cost of goods is about $900. Uh, they did this at a time uh, when SARS bird flu was an issue. And the, the thought in the back of their mind was the federal government could use a stockpile of ventilators. Turned out the federal government didn't think that was such a great idea, uh, but they were able to found this company in India, bring it up there to provide uh, ventilators in that uh, context. So the third uh, and final point I wanna hit in terms of uh, changing picture has to do with the fact that uh, we've done a good job, a lot of universities have done a good job of bringing people up to uh, having a, a good invention, a solid invention. Uh, it was never really true that, that a you know, great idea is good enough in and of itself. But the point I wanna make is that with the shifts of the healthcare environment, the business environment now, a, a great idea is nowhere near good enough. You uh, really need to have uh, a concerted effort to struggle with some of these translational problems, the, the intellectual property, the regulatory basics, reimbursement, uh, you know, how to build a team, how to uh, plan for the business, the, the, the funding of the business. Now, I have to say that, um, you know, across the country, your colleagues uh, in, in uh, CT surgery have been the leaders uh, overall in trying to deal with this uh, uh, gap, uh, uh, the, the valley of death. So Dr. Cosgrove, uh, 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 you know, developed the, the Cleveland Clinic uh, um, Innovations Program and GCIC. Uh, Bobby Robbins, when he was uh, still in Houston, kicked off TMC Innovations and uh, TMCX. Uh, Billy Cohn's still there doing a nice uh, interface between uh, the, the, the uh, corporate med tech environment there and, and teaching. And then back at the University of Minnesota, uh, the Bakken Center uh, is uh, one of the, the strong translational programs. You may recognize uh, Earl Bakken's image. He was the engineer that actually designed Little High's uh, pacemaker and went on to start uh, Medtronic. There are a number of other programs that, that are great. I just uh, picked those uh, few. And you know we're trying to, to catch up ourselves. We're gonna be opening a, uh, a fairly large uh, prototyping facility uh, in conjunction with Fogarty Innovation uh, later this fall. The point I wanna make, the, the thing I'm getting to is that uh, programs and facilities like this are great, uh, but what you need to focus on uh, in the current climate of innovation is the expertise. It takes a C-suite uh, to make these things happen. By that, I mean, it takes experts who are doing this for real. They have deep experience. This is the group that we're starting to, to work with uh, at Fogarty. Uh, there are 300 years of experience represented on, on this screen. So uh, it's interesting at our administration uh, in our medical center, and I've talked uh, to a few other places, have the idea 
and this is a, a relatively recent idea in the last few years, that, that they really want to hold on to technologies longer uh, to develop them further within the university setting. Incubators are springing up and so on. And the idea is to capture more value uh, for that technology before it gets released into the business environment. I just want to end by saying that's a little bit of a quaint uh, notion uh, because the reason most of the value accrues once ideas leave the university is that that's where the people are who know how to add value. So if you're going to set up a program uh, like this, you really need to invest uh, in people who, who have done it, who have the experience. Um, I see a lot of programs where this is a volunteer function. Uh, you have to invest in having the talent to, to uh, make this happen. All right, well, let's wrap up. Going back to uh, that first uh, pacemaker, and I love this image. This is the, the garage, Earl Bakken's garage, where that pacemaker was built uh, and uh, uh, brought up into, uh, the, um, uh, into commercial uh, practice. So what do we said? We said that hospital technology uh, is, uh, was the mainstay of the medical technology industry originally, we're shifting to health technology, much broader idea, pre and post hospital care. Product center businesses are giving way to value center businesses. We have to pay attention to economic value as an important criteria uh, in needs finding. And finally, uh, although the inventor entrepreneur is uh, always going to be the critical initiator of the process, you have to have a team, that team has to include people with deep experience uh, in bringing technology through the business process uh, into patient care. So uh, going back, last slide, uh, focusing on this iconic image of, of Dr. Lillehei, uh, one thing that remains true now happily, and I, I suspect Dr. Lillehei would be happy about this. I know Tom Fogarty is happy about it, that uh, innovation is still driven by the patient needs. So uh, all of you who are in the trenches of, of medical practice uh, are still the sources of the great innovations that are going to come uh, in the next years. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much.